We see Jesus. Hebrews 20, 20, increment 34. Telicautes soterias. Today we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2. I'm in the pulpit. Jim's in the booth. We're ready to go from the Alamo. Father, we ask that you'll bless the going forth of your word today. May it find purchase in the hearts of many. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If I hadn't entitled our present Hebrews 2020 series, We See Jesus, I might have rather chosen the title, Such a Great Salvation. That wouldn't have been a bad choice either because to see Jesus is to see such a great salvation. Hebrews 2.1, I've decided to give a translation first and then we'll do expo- exposition and exegesis in the next couple times together, or today especially. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 reads like this. On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard, lest we start drifting away. For if the word spoken by angels was firm, And every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty. How will we escape if we pay attention or if we pay no attention? Please notice we pay more attention. Now here it says, what if we pay no attention? How shall we escape if we pay no attention to such a great salvation which was first received being declared through the Lord himself by those who heard him. God himself testifying at the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. Note the Trinitarian aspect of this. The Lord himself in the days of his flesh spoke of this so, such great salvation. And the Father, through the Holy Spirit, backed the message with miracles and various kinds of signs and wonders. And there were those who heard the message directly from him and affirmed it, some in writing later. So Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 launches the first major exhortation passage in this homily. Hebrews is both a kind of spoken homily and a written treatise or dissertation. The strand of exhortation that begins here with 2.1 goes throughout most of this homily. We have intervals of exhortation dotted throughout in key places. As we can see, just by taking a glance all the way into Hebrews chapter 12 toward the end, in verse 25, note the connection and note the similarities between 2, 1 to 4 and Hebrews 12, 25, which goes through 29. Hebrews 12, 25 says, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. For if those who rejected him who spoke on earth didn't escape, How much more will we not escape? Please notice that. If we refuse him who imparts a revelation from heaven. The urgency here 
shouldn't be lost on any of us. These and most of the other exhortation passages in Hebrews are correctly called co-hortatory. Co-hortatory. Because instead of the writer, the PT, saying, you do this, he most often says, let's do this. The writer of Hebrews was a Christian leader and an excellent example of one who leads from the front. His exhortation arises from his exposition of the scriptures. His exposition is impressive. His exhortation is imperative. The majesty of the exposition in Hebrews is matched by the urgency of the exhortation therein. The exhortation being the Impartation of encouragement, incentive, morale to move forward, to keep moving. This first exhortation springs from the exposition of Hebrews 1, which culminated with the writer saying that all of God's angels are ministers deployed by God to lend support to the heirs of salvation. Hebrews 1.14. And this salvation spoken of, referred to in Hebrews 1.14, is called such a great salvation, exclamation point, in 2.3. No one who is an heir of this salvation can afford to neglect this so great salvation. In this life, we can't afford to neglect it. Having established the transcendent dignity and the incomparable glory of the Son over angels with some hefty documentation from the Greek text of the Hebrew Scriptures, especially from the Psalms, the PT now exhorts his readers. First, his exhortation has an expositional basis. And this is extremely important. His exhortation has an expositional basis. Hebrews 2.1 begins with dia tuto. Dia tuto. That means for this reason or on account of this or therefore. Because God has spoken with definitive finality in his son. Because his son has been exalted to God's right hand in heaven after making purification for sins. Because God's Son has a transcendent dignity incomparably higher than all of the angels, and because our salvation is such a great matter that God has mobilized all the angels on behalf of all the heirs of salvation, Wouldn't it be advisable, do you think, for us to pay more attention and be more attentive than we ever have before to the things we have heard in this regard? Of course it would. In fact, this becomes the urgent matter of Hebrews. It is a matter of intensification of attentiveness. 
to the word that God has spoken in his son. And to the words spoken by the son, the Lord Jesus, of such a great salvation. This great salvation is related to what the Greek text of Isaiah 9.5 calls, which is 9.6 in your English Bibles, the great intention. Please notice, such a great salvation related in Isaiah 9.6, LXX 9.5, to the great intention, God's great intention. It's called Megales Bules, or Megales Bules. You'll see it in print. In fact, that passage, Isaiah 9.6, LXX 9.5, reveals that the son, the child that's given to us and the son that's born to us, is the messenger, and the word for messenger there is angelos, angel of the great intention. Jesus is the angel of the great intention. But don't be confused by the word angelos there. It means that God's divine and human son is the messenger, as well as the manifestation of God's great salvific intention his determined and unstoppable resolution that is the great intention of God is his determined and unstoppable resolution to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth and he does so in Jesus in whom righteousness and peace have passionately kissed. That's what Psalm 85, 10, LXX 84, 11 says. Righteousness and peace have had a rendezvous, and they have p- kissed, they have met, they have kissed passionately. And they have met together in Jesus Christ. So sometimes this word angelos, depending on context, is descriptive of Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, who from time to time is called the angel of the Lord. The Greek is angelos kuriu. For example, in Genesis 22.11, Numbers 22.24, Judges 13.3. Another example is Genesis 48:16 where Jacob said, "May the angel who delivered me from all evil," reminds me of the prayer petition in the Lord's prayer, "deliver us from evil." "May the angel who delivered me from all evil bless these boys, his sons." The net study note, net being the New English translation of the Bible, His study note in that translation, study note 30, says this. Jacob closely associates God with an angelic protective presence. This does not mean that Jacob viewed his God as a mere angel. But it does suggest that he was aware of an angelic presence sent by God to protect him. Here... He so closely associates the two that they become virtually indistinguishable. I said all that, or 
reported all that to show you that Jesus is the angelos, the angel of the great intention. Not only because he announced God's unstoppable determination to reconcile all things in a saving way, but because Jesus Christ himself is the manifestation of that intention. He is the living intention of God. Or we could say he is the word of God. Eternally spoken, incarnate. So I've said before that our study of Hebrews will be like any other study or commentary. Because of the path we have taken, another pastor could say the same thing. We all come from different paths, different studies of the scriptures, different angles to any given study. But I can say that ours will be like any other because of the path that we have taken to come to this study. Because we've studied at some length the gospel and the apocalypse of John. The gospel of John called the fourth G or the fourth gospel. The apocalypse of John, which we call Rev the book or Revelation. We've been attentive to one of the prime examples there of those who heard that great salvation through the lips of the Lord himself and saw him as the manifestation of it. That being a man called the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He referred to himself as that. And it was, it's kind of charming in a way. The same could be said about Paul, that he was one who heard the Lord himself. We studied him with great detail on our way to study Hebrews with a series called Better Call Paul. And then reading Romans with the light on, as well as Romans doctrines, justification. More recently, our study on the doctrine of the mystery uncovered that which is known as the mystery of God's will, which is the same as his unstoppable intention and resolution, his great intention and resolution. In fact, the same word bules is used in Ephesians 1.11 as in the, Hebrew, the Greek text of Isaiah 9.5. So the mystery of God's will is related to the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth, and their summing up in Christ, so that Christ himself, in fact, comprises all things, filling up all things with himself, as Ephesians 4.10 will go on later to explain. The PT, again, he leads from the front here. He doesn't say, because of this, you ought to be more attentive. He says, because of this, we ought to be much more attentive. We. Another subject that we've attended to in the past is the subject of five transcendent precepts. Principles, we could say, for self-transcendence in a higher integration of human living. These principles are, one, be attentive. Two, be intelligent. Three, be reasonable. Four, be responsible. And five, be in love. I first read about these transcendent precepts, which we'll call TPs if you want, 
In Bernard Lonergan's writings, I apply these precepts to the higher integration of human living that transcends the human self by a sublation of the human self by a participation in the life and faithfulness of the Son of God. In other words, I've taken these five transcendent precepts and applied them to the spiritual life. That's all. This sublation, the subject of a recent message, involves the disempowerment of what Paul called the body of sin in Romans 6, 6, which is otherwise shown to be the putting off and away from oneself of the old man, the taking off and putting away the old self and completing that transaction action to put on the new self who is ever renewable and ever conformable to the image of God. So the authentic Christian life, a lot of things are called the Christian life. Not all of them are authentic Christian living, however. The authentic Christian life isn't just a moral self-improvement. It isn't just a new self-assertion with a twist of faith or, or testimony. The authentic Christian life is in effect a transcendence of self rather than an improvement of self or an assertion of self. Self-assertion, I hope you'll listen to this little paragraph I'm engaged in right now. Self-assertion is the norm of the evil age. It is the way of the world that's under the sway of the evil one. In fact, we could say self-assertion is more simply the way of the evil one. Transcendence of self is the way of the age to come. And that's why we have verses like Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, fellow believers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that you no longer be conformed to this age. To be conformed to this age is to live in the norm of an amoral self-assertion rather than a spiritual self-transcendence. So, once again, self-assertion is the way of the world that is under the sway of the evil one. Put 1 John 5.19 together with Galatians 1.4 and Romans 12.2. You'll start to get a picture. The way of self-assertion, amoral self-assertion, amoral, one word, amoral, is more simply the way of the evil one. Transcendence of self is the way of the age to come, which is under the sway of the Son of Man and the Holy Spirit. It is the way of Jesus Christ. And Jürgen Moltmann wrote a whole book called The Way of Jesus Christ. Transcendence of self is accomplished not by and in oneself, but by a participation in the life of Christ and by companionship with the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 6.4 Self-transcendence amounts to the salvation of the soul. Hebrews 10.39 The soul is not saved 
James 1.21 also comes to mind. The soul is not saved through self-assertion, but through self-transcendence through the implanted word which is able to save the soul. James 1.21. Salvation is something or someone that comes to us from outside and beyond ourselves. And works within us. It is God from beyond us. God for us. We studied that in Romans 8. Divine promeity. It is God from beyond us. Extra nos. Says the Latin. It is God for us. Pro nobis. And it is God in us. Willing and working. For his own pleasure. Or to his own intention or end. That's Philippians 2.13. It is an accomplishment of God. And not an achievement of self or of man. It is not self-realization. This spiritual life. But the realization that Jesus Christ is in us. As 2 Corinthians 13.5 says. And that we can do nothing. Or produce anything of lasting value without him. In John 15, 5. It is the realization that in me, that is in my flesh, there resides no good thing in my unaided human condition. I can do nothing that pleases God. There's nothing good in Romans seven eighteen. It is abiding in him, rather, and he in us. John 15, 4. As his spirit brings forth fruit in us and through us, against which there exists no law. There's no law against love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, meekness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. There's no law against them. The famous philosopher Martin Heidegger proposed a kind of amoral self-assertion while Bernard Lonergan taught a responsible, morally and otherwise, self-transcendence as the way to live. I think that the five transcendent precepts that we mentioned are elegantly applicable to a kind of livingness which is none other than the present experience of such a great salvation. I said a livingness that is nothing other than the experience in this present life of such a great salvation. A salvation that will one day and forever be manifested as an eschatological Sabbath for the people of God. There remains now a Sabbath rest for the people of God, says Hebrews 4.9. And for all creation for that matter, as Hebrews 4.3 says in connection with Genesis 2.2 and as compared with Romans 8.19-23, such is the scope of the eschatological Sabbath. 
Revelation 21.5 also. Look, I'm making all things new. In this life, and in this world, the evil one, as he's called in 1 John 5.19, asserts himself. He asserts himself and attempts to insert himself into the minds of human beings to take them captive to do his will. And oh, how he has succeeded through Marx, through Freud, through other so-called scientists, through Descartes, through Einstein, through many who are touted as the heroes of science. He has inserted himself Darwin, others, so that people now believe what they call science, but it's rooted rather in the tenets of an ideology that is antagonistic to the scriptures. I'm not knocking science. I'm not even knocking the finding of science and scientists, some of whom I just mentioned. But There is a science that accords elegantly with the scriptures, which modern scientism rejects or neglects, and much of modern science has not yet caught up with. The evil one attempts to insert himself into the minds of human beings in order to take them captive to do his will. To do his will is to live a life of self-assertion that rejects such a great salvation from God, that projects self through every possible means and through every possible media. Well, the teaching of the pastor-teacher who ought to be gentle and persuasive in his teaching, but consistent and constant, is directed toward the Lord hopefully granting repentance to those who are so captivated and so be freed from and liberated from this terrible self-destructive life of amoral self-assertion and pride. In this world, Hebrews urges this, in this world we are to strive to enter into God's sabbatical rest by ceasing from our own works as God did from his when he made all things, that is, in the original creation. And God will rest again after he makes all things new and we will enter into his rest in a time of great recreation And everlasting joy. If you blend Revelation 21.5 with Genesis 2.2 and Hebrews 4.3 and 4.9, you'll start to get a picture. This means that though there remains a Sabbath rest, there still remains one. Now, today, there's still one out there. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this rest will only fully come when Jesus Christ comes with salvation. When the law of entropy is reversed in the universe. When God makes all things new. 
though it remains, it can nevertheless be proleptically experienced even now. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me and find rest, Jesus said. Although the Sabbath rest is reserved to be experienced then in his coming for, with salvation completely. The present experience of the coming universal Sabbath is the Sabbath of the soul. In other words, now there can be in great measure or in small measure, the Sabbath of the soul. It's like the song, when peace like a river attendeth my soul. It is the peace that is experienced when a person can truly say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Philippians 1.21, it is the life of self-transcendence in which the ordinary life of the self is sublated by incorporation with Christ and in which the self under sin called the body of sin, the self under sin called the body of sin is destroyed. Romans 6, 6, that means put off, rendered effective in our companionship with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 6, and 7, Romans 8, really 6 through 13 tells that story, as does Galatians 5, 5 and 6, and 16 through 23. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus said this. He didn't say it in anger. He didn't say, he said it with emphasis, but he said it with great joy. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's a command of Jesus to his disciples then. It's a command of Jesus to his disciples now. But this command, this urgent request, does not ultimately lead to self-denial. But to self-transcendence in a participation with life the life of Jesus and the faithfulness of the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This life and what we like to call livingness, a term coined by Moltmann is early participation in such a great salvation. It begins with attentiveness. It carries on through intensified attentiveness. Be attentive. Listen, Israel. Be attentive, Israel. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. And you will love the Lord. It's attentiveness. It begins with attentiveness. It ends with being in love. 
in love with the Lord your God and loving one another as we love ourselves and loving one another, in fact, as Christ loved us. But it begins with attentiveness. Let us be more attentive to the things we've heard. I can't urge this enough. I'd have to holler. Attentiveness yields intelligence, real intelligence. Intelligence is awareness. Intelligence is a kind of seeing. We see Jesus. Attentiveness to what we have heard yields awareness of such a great salvation that was first received by those who heard him, who heard the Lord Jesus himself. They were ear and eye witnesses who later affirmed what he said, some of them in writing. And I think, again, we can include Paul in this as those who heard him. Because though he was not with Jesus in the days of Jesus' flesh, he nevertheless both saw the Lord and heard him, the righteous one, speak. Acts 22, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, two verses that help tell that tale. He, along with the apostle Peter and the the one called the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the author of the fourth gospel, are among those in the forefront of those who heard the Lord and confirmed what he said in writings that are still attributed to them in the New Testament. John, who's also called the the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that simply means Jesus was able to have fellowship with him as he couldn't with others, because this disciple had learned self-transcendence and what it meant to be all in with Christ. John, the beloved disciple, who I believe also wrote 1 John, or Alpha John, the first epistle of John, said that he even knew the eternal word, not just by hearing and seeing, but by touch. We have handled the word of truth. Now, what we have heard in Hebrews 2.1 is related to what was first spoken by the Lord Jesus himself and confirmed by those who heard him. I say again, prominent among those who first heard the Lord were Peter, who wrote First and Second Peter, and the one who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He sat at Jesus' right side at supper, John 13, 23, and 21, 20. He was referred to by Jesus, who was on the cross at the time, as his own mother's son. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. John 19, 26. In other words, even though this beloved disciple was not Jesus' physical brother. The Lord was not ashamed to call him his mother's son.
That is his brother. Check out Hebrews 2.11 in this connection. These two, Peter and John, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, not the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the different guy. These two not only heard Jesus himself declare such a great salvation, they also saw him as such a great salvation. They saw Jesus as the manifestation and personification of such a great salvation. It was also these two men who had a foot race to the empty tomb upon hearing the testimony of Mary Magdalene in John 20, verses 2 to 4. The disciple whom Jesus loved won that race. He beat Peter. Now, there are multiple similarities of John's gospel with Hebrews. Including Jesus' reference to God as my God, which recalls Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. God, your God, has anointed you with the celebratory oil of rejoicing rather than your angelic companions. And also, Jesus said, my God and your God, in John twenty seventeen which indicated a profound solidarity of Jesus with his disciples. This solidarity being a motif of, that the pastor teacher or the pastor theologian, the PT in Hebrews, capitalizes on this in Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. Now I've said all this as a kind of a lead-in to an exegesis of Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, I hope you're still listening, is a kind of exhortation, exordium, an exhortation, exordium, or introduction, just as Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is an exposition, exordium, or an introduction to the whole treatise that we call Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews 1 to 4, 1, 1 to 4, and this will be in print so you can see it. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 segues neatly into 2, 1 to 4, even if we skip over the florilegium in 1, 5 to 14. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 reads like this, and I'm going to read 1, 1 to 4, and then 2, 1 to 4, and see there's a beautiful segue and elegant connection between the two, between the exordium to the exposition and the exordium of the exhortation, the co-exhortation. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In many parts and in various ways, long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, who has made purification for sins, 
who has sat down on the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 2.1, right into Hebrews 2.1 now through 4. On account of this, on account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard lest we start drifting away. For if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, how will we escape the implication a just penalty? And I'll explain that down the road. If we pay no attention to such a great salvation, which was first received, being declared through the Lord himself, by those who heard him, God himself testifying at the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. Those two passages, one, one to four, two, one to four, splendidly coalesce. We may ask now, though, and these are some questions for future consideration, but in a way, I'm succinctly saying what I'm going to say by a longer exposition. We may ask this question, when and how did the Lord himself declare such a great salvation? Now, John 12:32 comes to mind immediately to me. There Jesus famously announced, if I am lifted up, I will drag like a fisherman drags a net all to myself. But in an even larger sense, God spoke of such a great salvation when he spoke with finality in his son. In other words, that such a great salvation is Jesus, whom the father spoke as his eternal word. God spoke with finality in a son. Hebrews 1-2. The son, S-O-N in Hebrews, is the Word, capital W-O-R-D, in John's Gospel. Jesus, the Son, is the Word that God spoke. The Word of such a great salvation that God spoke is personified in God's only eternally begotten Son. In Jesus, who said, when I am lifted up, then you will know that I am. I am. John 8, 28. We could fill in these words. You will know that I am your salvation. You will know that I am your God, your King, your great high priest. The Lord, the Son, became the manifestation of such great salvation. Such a great salvation. He became the manifestation of it the very identification of it in the Christ event. On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we've heard. And I could say that too for our assembly. What we've heard in the past several years as an assembly. Well, what have we heard? What have we heard? We've heard about such a great salvation the message of which was first received by those who heard the Lord himself. 
such a great salvation. Quidset. What is it? Now, in the epilogue of a book called Disruptive Grace, the epilogue was called Meditation on the Blood of Christ. In 1998, George Hunsinger, H-U-N-S-I-N-G-E-R, observed, quote, you'll also find this in Fleming Rutledge's book on page 283, her excellent and phenomenal book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Christ by Fleming Rutledge. But you also found it, and I have this book by Hunsinger, so I'm quoting directly from it. He wrote, quote, It is not possible to refer to Christ's blood without speaking of the saving significance of his death and this is thrown down today as a gauntlet to those who are afraid to speak of Christ's death as a sacrifice to those who are afraid and too squeamish to speak of the bloody sacrifice of Christ which resulted in expiation in the putting away of sin to those who cringe at these ideas that Christ actually was experiencing a God forsakenness from God himself on the cross. They want to delimit the sacrifice. And there's a whole trend of this going on. And to me, I think it just makes me angry. So I'm throwing down the gauntlet here. He says, it is not possible to refer to Christ's blood without speaking of the saving significance of his death. Slightly later on, in the same passage and on the same page, page 361 of Disruptive Grace, Hunsinger wrote, and listen carefully, the motif of Christ's blood actually embraces the entire sweep of Christian soteriology. I have a doctrine building in my soul and it has been building for several years. I call it blood groove. In the sword, in a sword of a combatant, there's usually a groove running down right between the two sharp edges. It's called a blood groove. It's where the blood drains out. It's a blood groove and the sword of the word of God from beginning to end has a blood groove in it. Hunsinger goes on to say, and I hope God gives me breath and life long enough to speak on what I call blood groove. The doctrine of the blood of Christ. So, slightly later, on the same page, I'm quite calm. Jim will tell you, he sees I'm very calm. In fact, I think God is calm even when he's wrathful for some reason, because his wrath serves the purpose of love. But, the motif of Christ's blood actually embraces the entire sweep of Christian soteriology. It pertains to salvation in its overall basic structure of, listen carefully to these three Latin phrases, extra nos, extra nos, pro nobis, in 
novice. Those three Latin phrases, that's Hunziger's words, those three Latin phrases are expressive of, in my view, of what the Hebrew writer calls such a great salvation. Three features of it. Extra nos, from beyond ourselves. Pro novice, for us. In novice, in us. That's so great a salvation. Telicautes soterias, as it says in Hebrews 2.3. It is extra nos, this such great salvation, because it's from beyond us. It is pro nobis because it is for us. For us all, says Romans 8.32. It is in nobis, in us. So to work out your own salvation, kind of a fearful sounding verse, to work out your own salvation in Philippians 2.12 is simply to allow such a great salvation that originated beyond us and that is always for us to be activated in us. This occurs as we continue to unite faith with the preaching of the word in Hebrews 4.2 and to walk in the spirit in Galatians 5.16 so that the lust of the flesh which is mostly toward self-assertion, is thwarted, and the fruit of the Spirit is produced in and through us, fruit against which no law exists, fruit that demonstrates the great freedom, which is a life lived in self-transcendence, a soul-saving life in participation with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm done.